All right, so I'm back at it again. I wanted to talk about the concept of of persecution. I really feel like I need to get more in depth into it. So it's reasonable faith. So I'm going to look at um, reasonable faith with William Lane Craig. The Christians have a persecution complex. What are some things St. Augustine believed in? Why should we uh, study him? Transcript. Do Christians have a persecution complex? Kevin Harris. Dr. Craig. Christians in the West are often accused of having a persecution complex. We think we're being persecuted because of our views. We consider what we often take to be persecution compared with church history compared to what is going on in other countries. It so pales in comparison, it is almost embarrassing to use in the same sentence. What I would like to know from you is, while the Bible says that we can expect persecution, I wonder if it is possible to build a society that limits persecution where persecution isn't a problem? Is that why perhaps in Western America in particular that persecution has been very limited? Dr. Craig, it certainly is true, isn't it? That the kinds of persecution that we might experience in the United States is strictly compared to what our Christian brothers and sisters in Iraq Syria and Lebanon and Libya are experiencing where they and their children may be brutally murdered for their faith in Christ as well as displaced and discriminated against. So the kind of persecution that we endure is really, really very trivial compared to what they endure. But I do notice that when Jesus talks about persecution, bad disease includes persecution that is merely verbal and not life-threatening. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is very happy. So men persecuted the prophets who reported. Here, Jesus includes in persecution insulting words and evil false rumors that are spread about a person. These are part of suffering for Christ's sake as well. Certainly, people in our American culture, especially politically correct mentality, will suffer this kind of verbal persecution and standing for Christ today. I myself have been on the object of this sort of, ven- of, ven- of ven- venomous rhetoric. I don't read the internet what it says about me, but people often say to me, how can you put up with the violent, hateful things that are said about you on the internet? I am blissfully ignorant of those things, but I take confidence promise that I can rejoice and be glad when people revile me in that way it is a blessing from God. Kevin Harris, Christ, as one missionary put it, transforms the culture. I think the goal is to bring people to Christ in a society that would minimize persecution, but we could always expect it at some level as long as we're the generous on earth. Right, another passage in scripture that's relevant here is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where Paul writes to Timothy says, All who desire to live a God life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He's probably thinking that they're not simply of the sort of physical stuff that he experienced in his lifetime, but the sort of persecution that maybe Jesus was talking about that might befall any believer in Christ Jesus at any time in history. That kind of persecution is said to be our lot as Christians in a non-Christian world. But certainly a culture which has been transformed by the gospel in the way that Western culture in general, and American culture in particular, has been, is going to be a lot less dangerous than, for example, living in a Marxist culture, such as you had in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe prior to the fall of the Iron Curtain, 
and such as you have North Korea today. Are Muslim countries around the world like those I've already mentioned where Christians risk their very lives because these sorts of atheistic or Islamic countries have not been leavened by the ethos, ethos of the gospel and so practice um, violent persecution against Christian believers. Kevin Harris. I think often of a kind of modern model that we have some Christian men and women who are very powerful and influential and God has blessed them with wealth and influence. They're humanitarians that work hard for the gospel. They are far from being persecuted. They're in a society that God has seemingly blessed. We kind of aspire to be people like that, influential men that we're standing in society, but even they can experience some of this social ostracism. Beyond that, the Bible teaches that we have an enemy of the soul, so can we expect perhaps some persecution from spiritual forces? Dr. Craig, I would characterize that as more as trials or temptations. Those may be far more insidious and dangerous than persecutions. It may be for the people that you've already talked about. The real danger for those people might lie in pride and self-importance and grandiose self-images, as opposed to persecutions such as Christians in the country that scribe face. There it may not be persecution, which is really the enemy, but these other sorts of temptations that can really undermine a person and destroy him. Kevin Harris, we seem to be in a position to help those who have been persecuted around the world. Maybe talk about our need to do that. One thing probably is to read some of the missionary works and be aware of that persecution. There are relief organizations too that you can donate to Christian organizations that are working in Jordan and Lebanon to help, for example. With the relief of these wretched people that have been displaced by themselves now in these refugee camps around the Sudan, where they have been persecuted against the Islamic forces. We in the West do have the opportunity to use our wealth at least to help donate to Christian causes that are involved in the relief of the same persecution. Kevin Harris, can we appeal to the government as well as to do something about it? Dr. Craig, that certainly is true, isn't it? It's not, it is not just a matter of private charity, but of exerting political pressure on governments to do something more. That is certainly appropriate, that's certainly appropriate and important to do, but how we vote and what we tell our elected officials. Kevin Harris, when we look back at the history of the church, we see from time to time that God has perhaps allowed persecution to spread the gospel. When we look at the book of Acts, persecution tended to disperse the church a little bit. Dr. Craig, it did. Kevin Harris, there was a way that ha that has backfired against the opponents of the Christian faith, too. Dr. Craig, right, it's not always the case. For example, North Africa and Middle East were once in Christian hands. They were at least normally Christian nations, but through the wars of religion perpetrated by Muslim forces, the countries fell into the Islamic orbit. Christianity suffered its greatest geographical loss and has ever experienced in those years of Muslim conquest. Europe itself was threatened. Muslim forces were at the gates of Vienna. Spain was Muslim for some centuries, so it is not true that persecution always aids the church and results in church growth. It can be very destructive of the work of the church. But we believe this is all in the province of God, ultimately, and that his province will work itself out in time over history. In other cases, persecution has abetted the growth of the church. Probably the prime example here is China. When China closed in 1948, the Communist Revol Revolution missionaries were expelled and the Bibles were burned. People thought that Christianity was basically extinguished in China. Lo and behold, what happened was during those intervening years that the underground church grew and grew, and despite the cultural revolution in China, which changed the millions of people lost their lives, the church flourished under the sort of persecution. When China finally opened again to the West, it was found that the church had grown to tens of millions of people. Some would say today that the church in China means another 100 million people continue to grow. In some cases, persecution does backfire on the perpetrators, but that is not always the case. Kevin Harris, if 
Bottom line, we need to pray for those who are persecuted in the world today. Do what we can to help most of us that we can always depend on God's grace when we're persecuted. Dr. Craig, and I, think, and I think to learn the lesson of turning the other cheek. When Jesus says that someone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to the other also, I don't think he's teaching so much about passivity and nonviolence as he's imagining someone giving you the back of his hand. It's a slap of disrespect if you strike on the right cheek, a right-handed person giving you the back of his hand. It's an insult. Jesus says, Jesus is saying if someone does turn the other cheek to him as well. Jesus is saying if somebody does turn the other cheek to him as well, don't insult him back. Don't return reviving for reviving or cursing for cursing. But experience and accept this kind of treatment in the name of Christ of the Bible. I just want to say that I am against Islamophobia. I am against Asian hate. I am against atheist hate. What does atheist hate mean? Hating atheists. Um, I'm against the hatred of Asians. I'm against the hatred of Muslims. So I want to clarify that. I also want to say that I chose to read this article because I wanted to hear a, you know, traditional Christian perspective on this issue. Because I'll try to be very, very balanced and non-biased in what I say, even though I do make my opinions known. I'm also able to clarify some things. So I'm glad that these words were said because um, it, it helps to broaden the conversation. And I think about how um, there, you know, if you smuggle Bibles in China, you could be killed. Um, and people who are non-Christian are just as wonderful as Christians, okay? So I'm against anti-Christian hate, patriotism. Uh, I'm against, no, I'm against non-Christian, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say anti-Christian. I'm against non-Christian hate, I'm against the hatred of, of non-Christians, so. This is very meaningful to say, because it gives us more ideas, or better ideas on how to treat one another. So, let's talk about this some more, shall we? Okay. Why are Dish Deep and Doka Persecution Complex by Kevin Singer, May 15, 2019? Here we go. On May 11th, Mike Pence told a crowd of roughly 80,000 graduate students from Liberty University that they should prepare to be quote unquote shunned or ridiculed for defending the teachings of the Bible in their daily lives. You're going to be asked not to just tolerate things that violate your faith, you're going to be asked to endorse them, he said. Throughout most of American history, it's been pretty easy to call yourself Christian, but things are different now. Pence clearly scratched an itch for the crowd that gave him a standing ovation and loud chance that you are sad that he was introduced. His words are also familiar refrain in the white evangelical community. According to a 2017 study by the Public Religion Research Institute, white evangelical Protestants were the only religious group more likely to believe Christian-based discrimination than American Muslims. I used to be one of the, those evangelicals who bemoaned anti-Christian bias whenever and wherever it reared its ugly head. At the public university, I attended as an undergraduate, I would sometimes hear stories of faculty shaming Christian beliefs in the classroom. These anecdotes made my evangelical student groups as outreach events would feel like acts of resistance against those secular forces on campus. We fought Ralph to silence us. 
Push back on our beliefs and practice was almost always romanticized as the fulfillment of the persecution that Jesus foretold his followers would experience. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 and 33, John chapter 16, verse 33. Then was quickly followed by prayers for our corporate enemies and requests that God would move obstacles to the success of our ministry. I remember telling my brother from other campuses that my university was a quote unquote dark place with very few Christians who took their faith seriously. It wasn't until I started making friends with people of minority religious traditions that I began to revive the premise that devout Christians are an endangered species in America that requires special protection. I'll never forget the first time a Muslim friend told me about her experiences being ridiculed in public, not because of anything she did, but because of what she was wearing. She told me that she almost always felt unsafe walking through grocery stores and sitting in a car alone. I was also confronted with stories from religious minority students are being approached on their college campuses sometimes multiple times a day by Christians intent on sharing their faith. They presumed they were targeted because of their ethnicity or clothing. They felt paralyzed to say no or exit these conversations either because of the social etiquette they were raised with or because the conversation was a bait and switch that they did not see coming. I was also told stories about others being frequently asked in classrooms to speak on behalf of all Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, etc. Despite the diversity of beliefs and practices in these traditions, or to explain why people in their tradition with whom they have little in common could do such terrible things. While Christianity was made to look irrational even when critiqued, their beliefs were subtly dismissed as primal and backwards, not even worth entertaining. Even if Christianity wasn't being preached or praised, it received deference in ways that most Christians have taken for granted holidays and academic calendar, food offerings, school rituals and symbols, prayers and events, and even the privilege, and even the privilege of gaining a hearing when they felt unfairly treated. I began to realize that my claims to quote-unquote persecution were significantly overblown. How I framed these experiences said more about me and my privileges as a Christian in America than about the people and environments I accused of being anti-Christian. The one I expected to be afforded a certain level of respect for my faith, whereas many religious minorities have come to expect the opposite. Second, much of what I experienced came as a result of having privileges that religious minority groups don't typically have. My biggest regret, however, is that I did not see the contradiction in my, in my demands for respect with the earthly ministry of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. If Jesus' life was dedicated to the interests of others, Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, why was I so absorbed with making fortifications and secularism and alternative worldviews? What was I so afraid of? To be sure, there have been several instances in the past few years of Christian student organizations being treated unfairly under university policies. Furthermore, Christian persecution is reaching alarming levels overseas. ISIS and Boko Haram militants, for example, continue to commit violence against millions of Christians and force them from their homes. In Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, 258 worshippers were killed in a series of bombings. These horrific events merit serious reflection on the frightening realities that Christians face every day in the country. You have black churches being bombed and white evangelicals say nothing and do nothing. However, these global realities also raise an important question about how evangelicals in America are using the word quote-unquote persecution to describe critical encounters when they come in comparison to the life-threatening experiences that Christians are having overseas. What evangelicals here are calling persecution might actually be the tamest forms of criticism. When evangelicals respond by retreating into their enclaves, enclaves, groaning about the culture and flexing the privileges, they are signaling where their treasure lies. 
More than convincing me to ditch my evangelical persecution complex, my religious minority friends challenged me to remember what first drew me to the Christian faith. Not that I was a, not that I was promised a life of fairness, but that in the life of Jesus I would find the power to live for others. By Kevin Singer, who's a co-director of Maple Leaf Faith and a PhD student in higher education at NC State. Um, The Evangelical Persecution Complex by Alan Noble, Theological Cultures of a Damaging Attitude in the Christian Community, August 4, 2014. Persecution is an alert for many evangelicals. In the Bible, Christians are promised by St. Paul that they will suffer for Christ if they love him, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. But especially in contemporary America, it is not clear what shape that suffering will take. Narratives of political, cultural, theological oppression are popular in evangelical communities. Believe it sometimes fiction or deeply exaggerated non-fiction and only rarely accurate. This is problematic if evangelicals want to have a persuasive voice in a pluralist society, a voice that can defend Christians from serious persecution, then we must be able to discern accurately when we are truly victims of oppression and when this victimization is only imagined. There are some understandable reasons for the exaggerated sense of persecution. Globally, Christians face incredible discrimination in North Korea and many Muslim governed countries. Christians risk imprisonment and death for their faith. The Christian community in Mosul, Iraq, was exiled, and many Christians are still persecuted by the ISIS, a jihadist group. Christians with a global perspective on their faith rightly identify themselves as part of the persecuted people in the 21st century. The United States evangelical values have often been in tension with public policy, culture, and morals, especially in the last several years. This includes recent debates over contraceptives, coverage, abortion rights, and the rise of same sex marriage. Some Christians anticipate major restrictions to religious liberty in the future as a result of these tensions, a concern that is not unfounded. But in anticipating such restrictions, it is easy to imagine wrongly that they are, that they are already here. Evangelical subculture plays a huge role in this perception. The Jesus Freak movement in the mid-1990s started by the popular musical group DC Talk made martyrdom and exclusion hit. There were signs that someone was a quote-unquote true Christian. Teens were encouraged by youth group leaders to read historical accounts of Christian martyrs reflecting how they could be Jesus freaks too. Being a quote unquote loser in the world's eyes for the sake of Jesus was paradoxically cool, but the emphasis, perhaps unintentionally, was on being a quote unquote freak rather than following Christ and accepting the consequences. The widely successful Left Behind books tell a similar narrative of persecution. Remember, the widely successful Left Behind books tell a similar narrative of persecution. Published between 1995 and 2007, the epic novels tell the story of the biblical end time through the lens of certain Christian traditions. The, the rapture of the church's persecution at the hands of the Antichrist and its ultimate triumph upon Christ's return. Like the quote-unquote Jesus Freak movement, these books seem to glorify, seem to glorify persecution. The kind that Christians in other parts of the world have long experienced but it's unheard of in the U.S. Even the last year, two films have been released which depict brave Christians standing up against the hostile violence and corrupt world. God's Not Dead tells the story of a Christian college student who is forced to sign a paper declaring that God is dead or debate his arrogant atheist philosophy professor played by Kevin Sorbo. The student accepts the challenge and debates the professor for three classes, eventually forcing him to admit that he really hates God because of his mother's death. The rest of the students stand up and declare that God's not dead, driving the atheist professor from the room. This film made $62 million at the box office. Even more explicit 
is the recently released persecution. A thriller about a per a thriller about a pastor is framed by the federal who is framed by the government for murder because he tries to stop the passage of the federal bill to restrict religious freedom. The Christian church itself has a long history of telling stories of martyrdom and persecution. The stories of saints' lives often center on their sufferings for Christ. For example, Fox's books of martyrs the populace and classic texts recounting notable martyrdoms throughout Christian history. The purpose of these stories is to inspire and strengthen Christians, particularly those who later face persecution. But they were not designed to function as an aspirational fantasy. And that is the real problem with many persecution narratives in Christian culture. They fetishize suffering. These narratives appeal to broader audiences too. Several major conservative political pundits and organizations have made a name for themselves by selectively highlighting cases of alleged persecution of Christians. The most well-known example is the so-called War on Christmas, which is predicated on the claim that the holiday has been secularized by retailers with marketing choices. Fox News has a reputation for running these sensationalized stories of suspected or alleged discrimination. For example, Todd Starnes, a popular commentator on the network, recently published God Bless America, purporting to expose the quote-unquote attack on traditional values. Starnes has built a career almost exclusively based on reporting alleged instances of Christian and conservative persecution. But his work almost always offers a skewed version of religious liberty in the U.S. He often exaggerates or omits facts. O-M-I-T-S, omits facts. From his career, he was fired from the Baptist press reporting factual and contextual errors. Yeah, he seems to be enormously influential, as I wrote last year. Starnes tells us what we want to hear. We want to believe that we are the underdog of Starnes sells us that story wrapped in language of patriotism and faith. Being a quote-unquote loser in the world's eyes example to Jesus was paradoxically cool. A number of other news organizations and Christian groups are also guilty of this. Take a recent story covered by the Citizen League. The, policy, the public policy partner focused on the family, highly influential, socially conservative advocacy group and ministry. The story is all about a small Texas church that acquired an old community center in a residential area and turned it into a church and school which violated local zoning laws. After unsuccessful attempts at changing the zoning laws, the church sued the town on claims of religious discrimination. A community center and Girl Scout camp was, were allowed in that area, but not a church, they said. When Citizen Link reported on the lawsuit, they framed this as a fight against quote-unquote anti-religious discrimination, but the minutes from the local town council showed that residents opposed rezoning because they were concerned about the noise and traffic the church and school would bring to their quiet neighborhood. Without digging deeper into Citizen Link's story, readers will be left to believe that this small Texas town is eventually targeting Christians for persecution. As the public policy arm of one of the most powerful evangelical organizations in the U.S., Citizen Link's influence is considerable. If an evangelical Christian reader chooses to get her news from Citizen Link with similar sources every day, it's easy to see why she would believe that there really is a war on Christians in this country. All of these cultural factors are framed in a deep theological conception of persecution. Traditionally, Christians have had a very broad view of what it means to suffer for Christ broad enough to include everything from genuine martyrdom to mild ridicule by non-believers. Behind this is an essential part of the faith, which is that every Christian will be persecuted by the world. True believers will lose jobs, face exile, and suffer from violence. Let me see. You have atheists who are losing jobs, facing exile, and suffering from violence. You have Muslims 
and people who are are people with disabilities are losing jobs facing exile suffering from violence. You do have that happen. The problem is that for most of US history, Christians haven't been persecuted, at least not in comparison to other believers of even what Christians in places like Iraq face today. So the question for American Christians is what to make of the Bible's warning that we will be persecuted. Many evangelicals lack a very public and dramatic persecution could be interpreted as a sign that they just aren't faithful enough. If they are persecuted, they could be confident they are saved. This creates an incentive to interpret personal experiences and news events as signs of oppression, which are ostensibly validations of our commitment to Christ. The danger of this view is that believers can come to see victimhood as an essential part of their identity. Believers can come to see victimhood as part of their identity. Older Christians, other Christian argue that biblical warnings not intended to mean that victimhood is a sign of salvation. Instead, they're meant to assure believers that suffering in life is not a sign that God is defending the faith or that the gospel is not the truth. This is a radical thing about Christ and coincidentally the reason why Nietzsche called Christianity quote unquote a slave morality. Christ is suffering on the cross as an inversion of worldly conceptions of success and power. This model is of sacrifice itself and persecution is a is a constituent part of his divinity, not a sign that he is defeated. That's not to say that there aren't very real instances of discrimination and hatred toward Christianity in the United States, but as members of the largest faith group groups in America, Christians are relatively well protected and more often accommodated than actively harmed. As evangelical morality increasingly changes the conflict with other cultural mores, evangelicals need to be even more careful about the debates they choose to engage in, the rights they choose to assert, and the hills they choose to die on. Too much is at stake for evangelicals to waste our resources and credibility on frivolous and occasionally self provoked quote unquote injustices. Imagine offenses jumped up by sensationalists and fear mongers should be exposed and denied. At times, even legitimate offenses should be overlooked when they are petty. By focusing attention on real substantial incidences of persecution, evangelicals will be much more effective at educating their neighbors and fighting for truly important matters of religious liberty. And this has implications for those outside of evangelicalism as well. It's a challenge of tolerance. Just because some claims of persecution are contrived doesn't mean actual persecution doesn't exist here and elsewhere. And even though the traditionally powerful influence of evangelicalism in America is waning, that doesn't mean it is just an infringement upon our rights. Tensions between Christians and non-Christians likely grow in the coming years of culture and more shift. As attention will come, negotiations, dialogue, lawsuits, ignorance, and conflict. Evangelical preparation for this must begin in our own houses to learn to better discern good theologies of suffering, edifying stories of persecution, and distorted reports of discrimination. Alan Noble is the managing editor and co-founder of Christ and Pop Cultures and assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. This is what I want to say. There are people who would say persecution is more about violence and murder and suffering. Some people say persecution is when you're teasing a funnel. Um, I would say that persecution is when you are actively shitting on people and actively fucking with people. It has to be ongoing and active for me. Um, 
I, I was persecuted for Christ when I was five. There were rapists who put a gun to my head and said if I did not stop professing Christ that they would kill me. I was blessed that they didn't kill me. But I don't have a persecution complex. My persecution complex was legitimate then. Where I am in life now is no longer legitimate. So I take uh, the concept of persecution seriously and I did then and now. And that's leaving. But I hate when people use the word persecution loosely, lightly, carelessly, and casually. So, Trying to see if there's more that I need to say, so I did. Alright, there's one more article. The American Christian persecution complex gets in the way of loving their neighbors by Seth Tower Heard, March 21st, 2017. I need to share some hard news, Jim May, senior vice president begins at the staff stares back with dread. At a normal workplace, hard news from an executive at a staff meeting almost surely means layoffs. At a global ministry, the news can sometimes be much worse. Jim's ever-present jovial smile fades and he tells us that multiple families were killed the night before butchered for no other reasons than their faith in Christ. On more than one occasion, I've met an international co-worker who serves in a dangerous region only to be left with the sinking feeling that the new friend I just made could do 30 years in prison without a trial or have their head cut off with a machete in the public square. My first week on the job, I met a photographer who had been held arrested for evangelizing in Cuba. The only reason he's free today is because U.S. citizenship comes with a lot of perks, including a nation that can flex massive military and financial muscle to secure the release of a person held in a hostile country. In my line of work, persecution isn't something we read about in a news story. That's why I was baffled by a new study by the Public Religion Research Institute from last month that white evangelicals in America believe they endure more discrimination than Muslims. In June 2016, the same research institute found that almost half of Americans say discrimination against Christians is as big of a problem as discrimination against other groups, including blacks and minorities. Three quarters of Republicans and Trump supporters said this, and so did nearly eight out of ten white evangelical Protestants. I'll show my hand here. I'm a white Republican evangelical who hunts, holds a concealed handgun permit, listens to country music, and watches cage fighting. The group of Christians who believe they're being persecuted are quote unquote my people ethnically, theologically, culturally, ethnically, theologically, culturally, which is why I'm in a unique position to call out attitudes and behaviors rooted in a false persecution complex that damages Christianity both in the U.S. and abroad. A toxic mix of bad theology and politically correct culture 
It's impossible to understand the white evangelical attitude around persecution without unpacking Armenian theology. The French movement was started by R.J. Rushduni. That's not a household name, but Rushduni's ideology also has had a profound effect on both the American church political structures. In the 1950s, Rushduni, a divorced adult missionary to Native Americans in Nevada, found a new career as a, co- as a contributor to Faith and Freedom, a Christian libertarian magazine that claimed to be based around a quote-unquote anti-tax, non-interventionist, anti-status economic model. For all practical intents and purposes, the publication formed to stand in opposition to then-President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Rushdini initially made a name for himself by claiming the government support made Native Americans socially and personally irresponsible. Rush Dooney was heavily influenced by Cornelius Van Til, a 19th century Dutch philosopher who argued that sin inhibits a person's ability to reason, and therefore the only true sane people on earth were Protestant Christians. In the 1960s, Rush Dooney used this increasingly large platform to push his followers, mainly white Protestants, to avoid the secularism of public schools from homeschooling. In 1973, he published the Institutes of Biblical Law, a massive 890-page volume calling for a Christian theocracy, a system of government in which priests rule the name of God in the United States. Although Rush Dooney passed away in 2001, theology lives on with his son-in-law, Gary North at the helm. In 1982, North um, called for believers to, quote, unquote, to get busy and construct a Bible-based social, political, religious order, which finally denies the religious liberty of the enemies of God. So the hard Christian domain theology still calls for the U.S. Constitution and biblical law. The division has frighteningly close to the jihadist goal of enacting Sharia law. If, you're, if your starting point for the Christian faith is that members of other faiths have no rights, non-Christians are technically insane, and that you have a God-given duty to control government, media and society at large, then yeah, anything less than that probably feels like quote-unquote persecution. The irony is that this viewpoint draws heavily from what is often referred to as college campus quote-unquote snowflake culture. This relative... Um, This relatively recent campus phenomenon is characterized by students demanding potentially controversial curriculum be labeled with quote-unquote trigger warnings in that quote-unquote safe spaces. Physical, refu- physical re- re- refuges from potentially scary ideas be-, be provided by the institution. Snowflake culture is equally unpopular on the political left and right. Conservative pundits regularly mock the whole system, and President Obama openly took the ta- and President Obama openly took the idea to task in 2015. Although adherence to Dominion theology would no doubt be infuriated by the comparison, it's easy to draw a line straight to the quote-unquote snowflake movement. Both ideologies decide to control the choice in favor of others to use force to do it. So I hate the false persecution complex. I hate Dominion theology. I hate snowflake culture. Okay, I hate them all. Hate them all. I hate persecution exaggeration too. I hate all that. A kingdom out of this world. When the New Testament mentions zealots, it's easy to put the group in the same mental box as Pharisees, hyper-legalists who get in the way of a true relationship with God. I I can't stand zealotry, nor the Pharisees. I, I, I don't like those hyper-legalistic dipshits. I don't. But first century zealots were not the ancient version of John Lithgow and Footloose, but a political movement similar to the Taliban. Zalots and even more extreme offshoot, the Sicarii, didn't just fight back against the Roman oppressors. 
They target Greek and Roman civilians for execution in Sakari, either murder. Fellow Jews who are not considered to be pious enough. The sex, S-E-C-T-S, eventually triggered war with Rome in 66 AD. Many first century Jews, including at least some of Jesus' own disciples, expected him to lead a, to lead a political revolution. Instead, Jesus hardly mentions the Roman Empire during his ministry. In John chapter 18, verse 36, Jesus tells Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. To put the government of the United, of the United States of America at the center of the gospel story means to feel psychological pain when that vision didn't come true. It's, it's simply a modernization of the Sabbath movement, which Jesus rejected, turning our backs on our neighbors and our leaders. The other problem is with the quote-unquote white Protestant persecution complex that there's just no evidence to back it up. Persecution is not someone saying something negative to you. Being forced to attend school or work with a person of an opposing viewpoint or a general anti-religious sentiment. Persecution is real, tangible harm inflicted on a person or group, and white Protestants seem to be holding a permanent hall pass. In the history of the United States, no white church has been burned as a hate crime. In the last 10 years, nine black churches have been terrorized or burned. Only one time has an American or U.S. soul been killed for the Christianity casting burnout at the Clinton High School attack of eyewitness accounts was inflicted on whether or not she was questioned about her faith. On a single day, 2015, white supremacist Dylan Roof murdered nine African Americans due to their race and faith in Christ. When white evangelicals become obsessed with controlling the government, there isn't much room left for sharing Christ. And there's either less chance that non-believers will want to hear from Christians who are openly trying to dominate and control behavior through force. And when our collective attention is turned to an American flag draped over a cross, it's likely we'll ignore the actual genocide and oppression believers around the world face. In 2016, 90,000 people around the world were killed for believing in Christ, and 600 million more were prevented from practicing their faith through intimidation, forced con- forced conversions by the harm, even death. By the way, these things have happened to Muslims, people who aren't Christian. You had Christians who put Muslims and other non-Christians through intimidation, forced conversions by the harm, even death. So what these Christians went through, meant to, you know, 2016, and as well as preventing them from practicing their faith, you had Muslims, non-Christians experiencing that from Christians throughout Christian history. Um, simply put, we cannot feign persecution and effectively reach our neighbor at home, nor can we properly understand the horrors fellow believers face around the world. Um, I just love my grace. I want to take a moment to say I love being brave. I really, really do. Um, I just have to keep going with the episodes I'm doing because I just love the healing. I love healing. I really do. It's something a treasure to be excited about. Um, it's I am proud to be proud of me, and I'm glad I, I'm explaining more and more of the reasons why I'm done bridging church and Christianity, why I left all three. There's more, so please, please stay tuned.